Nobody tells a better story about ancient Rome than the great Steve Pressfield. And what I learned from his new book is that they had the post office in ancient Rome that you could send a letter. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about stamps and open APIs. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hey, it's Seth. I wrote a new book. It was originally called Trust Yourself, but my editor persuaded me correctly to change the title to The Practice. If you'd like to see a free excerpt and a summary, visit trustyourself.com. Got to do something with that domain. Check it out. All right, well, it's not quite true. You couldn't send a letter. Well, at least I couldn't send a letter. The post office, the idea of sending a letter across the Roman Empire was only available to people who the emperor permitted to send letters. That the Romans built extraordinary roads. They spent a fortune connecting all the way from Jerusalem to Rome and beyond a network of roads that connected far-reaching countries that had never been connected before. And one of the things they did on those roads was they created the post. And the post was a relay of 10 or 12 riders, each waiting for the next one, a giant relay race to enable a message or a passenger to move from one place to another at really high rates of speed. It enabled travel, safe, fast travel, for the first time in human history. And while you were busy taking passengers, you could put in your sack, otherwise known as a mail, a bunch of letters. So here we have the postal service. Postal, because you're using the post road, and the mail, because you're putting it in a sack. And so the emperor could send a note to his soldiers, for example, in Jerusalem, and it would get there in a matter of weeks, not a matter of years. But I asked Steve, where did you go to buy a stamp? And that led me down the rabbit hole of, well, you really couldn't buy a stamp because the post wasn't an open system. Not only couldn't you look up someone's address particularly easily because people didn't have addresses, but there wasn't a way to pay for what was going on. And then hundreds of years later, Roland Hill wrote an influential article in which he showed that postal rates were too high, that the cost of the postal service was mostly a fixed cost, the fixed cost of all of those mailboxes and all of those postal delivery workers, and that if we lowered the cost of stamps, we would end up with more people sending more letters and the post office would still make a profit. What does this have to do with you and with me? Well. The post office today, of course, carries junk mail, catalogs, the occasional absentee ballot, but mostly the post office of today is email. And email seems to be free, and that's a problem. It's a problem because if it's free, you're not really the customer, and it's a bigger problem because if it's free, there's a crisis of the commons. That if it doesn't cost anything, to send a million emails and you make a dollar doing it, some people, people who are questionable about their ethics and morals, will go ahead and send a million emails so that they can make a dollar. 
which leads to the travesty of Gmail. Run by the monopoly Google, Gmail is free. It's beautifully designed. It seems to work. A lot of us use Gmail. But as I stated earlier, email is filled with spam. It's filled with spam because it's an open system where the stamps are free. Programmers call a system that we can tap into an API. It's basically a programming interface that lets someone who is not part of the organization put something into the system. And email is one of the biggest, oldest open APIs. Anybody with an email account can send an email to anyone else without permission. This is a significant dynamic in the way the system works because it's the recipient who bears the cost of filtering, sorting, and reading the email. It's the recipient's platform that has to hold the email, but it's the sender who can send the email for free and profit from doing it. So back to the problem with Gmail. Some of you have heard me rant before about Google's decision to build a promo folder. They built the promo folder so that people who were using a permission asset, the privilege of sending email to people who wanted to get it for free would be hampered in their ability to do so. So if you're used to getting emails from a catalog company you buy from, you may have discovered they're getting stuffed into the promo folder, not because you asked for it, but because Google realized that making it hard for companies to reach people they wanted to reach would make it more likely that companies would buy ads. It was in their interest as a monopoly to break things like blogs and email that they don't make money from, to force people to use something they do make money from, which is interrupting people with ads on Google. And so the promo folder is a bit of a disaster. It's a disaster for the recipient who can't figure out where my blog went, who can't figure out where that catalog went, and it's a disaster for the sender because they rightfully belong in your inbox. You asked to be in your inbox, and Google, a third party, you're not even paying to be part of this transaction, has moved them to the promo folder. But I actually today wanted to rant about the spam folder. Spam folder is a boon, it's a gift. I was there at the beginning of spam. In the late 1980s, early 1990s, there were Usenet discussion groups. These were basically asynchronous chat rooms where people could talk about something they were interested in, like stamp collecting or chess. And in the chess discussion board, two shady lawyers posted a note promising unsuspecting immigrants that for a few hundred bucks, they could get you a green card. This obviously has nothing to do with chess unless you're a grandmaster who has somehow ended up in the United States and needs a green card. It cost these lawyers nothing to interrupt this conversation about chess with their selfish ad about scammy green cards, but they did it, and then they did it in other places over and over and over again. And that was the origin of spam. Usenet threatened to break under the weight of all the spam because, like the expression bad money chases out good, as soon as a community starts suffering from a little spam, some people say, what the heck, and add more spam. And so it spirals out of control because there's no way to stop the bad actors. So spam filters came along two decades or so ago, 
And at the beginning, they were pretty rudimentary, but they've become more sophisticated. Not as sophisticated as they should be given AI's state of the art, but still, they are pretty good, perhaps 95%, 99% accurate at determining that that spam really is spam. It's email you didn't ask for, it's email you don't want, it disappears into a black hole. Well, in the last week, two different speaking gigs I was involved in disappeared into the black hole of spam in the middle of a conversation with dates and calendar reminders. Where am I supposed to be? Where's the Zoom link? Gone, disappeared into the spam folder. And once there are false positives in the spam folder, it becomes toxic because now you have to read the entire spam folder to discover what's there that's not supposed to be there. This isn't just happening to me. Google didn't seek me out, but it is happening to a lot of people. Stuff that shouldn't be in the spam folder is getting put there, just like stuff that shouldn't be in the promo folder is getting put there. So what does this have to do with stamps? Well, in 1998, shortly after I got to Yahoo, it occurred to me that the problem with spam was that the stamps were free. And in that moment in time, between AOL and Yahoo, at least a third of all the email that was going to consumers in the United States and other places was going through these two services. So I came up with the idea of charging a penny for a stamp. If I could get Yahoo and AOL to both go along with it, they could keep track of how many emails a given individual or organization had sent into their systems. And if they sent more than, say, 50 or 100 in a day, they would block them until these people started paying a penny an email. It could either be a profit center or you could give that money to a cause that would perhaps counter some of the carbon that's caused by email. So if you're only sending 50 emails a day, it would be free. If you're sending 100 emails a day, which is a fairly large amount and means you're probably doing something commercial, it would cost a dollar. But if you're one of those people that's sending a million emails a day, you're clearly sending them to people who probably don't want to get them. And so it would cost you $10,000 a day to send that many emails. And there's all sorts of refinements that could be added. For example, if both sides actively opted in, perhaps you don't have to pay a penny. If you get spam complaints, there's no amount of pennies that you'd be allowed to pay. Suddenly, the fact that you have to pay even a penny for an email makes you non-anonymous. It makes the API a different sort of API, one that is done with consent of the people on both sides. So it is open in the sense that anyone who's willing to play by the rules can use it, but it is not open in the sense that it will get wrecked in the commons because anonymous people can selfishly exploit it. Well, I didn't push hard enough and we never got the system in place, but it feels to me like right now when email is threatened once again by the overwhelming number of emails that are going back and forth. And as we are just finishing a political season, I can tell you I was getting more than 300 a day just from candidates asking for money, candidates I never once asked to reach me. In this moment, particularly when people like Gmail dominate the market, it may be time to revisit this. It may be time to realize that the interactions between and among people in the open API we call email could be improved simply 
by thinking about how much a stamp costs. 200 years ago, and thousands of years after the Romans started it, Roland Hill ushered in the modern age of philately and the postal service. He did it by helping people understand that stamps were too expensive, and lowering the price of a stamp could transform the way people communicated with one another, leading to modernity in many ways. But right in this moment, it's pretty clear that the cost of an email stamp is too low and that charging any amount, one simoleon, which we can define as a hundredth of a penny, might be enough. That what we have to do is make it non-anonymous, make it thoughtful, and establish a trail so that people who send stuff that is spam can't do it anymore. That we can accurately label where they go and that someone like Google uninvited, stops moving the email that I really need to read to a folder I didn't ask them to move it to. <laughs> Have you got anything without spam in it? Well, spam eggs, sausage and spam, there's not got much spam in it. So, yes, another rant, but I hope this one resonates and makes us think about whether the APIs we are building are open and whether fully open is better than mostly open. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with some questions from last time. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. If you want to learn to ride a bicycle, don't watch a video, don't read a book. Hey, it's Seth, and I'm here to talk about the Akimbo workshops. These are interactive, real-time, online workshops that work. And we're devoting 2020 to finding one that matches where you need to go. If you're ready to level up, I hope you'll check out akimbo.com to find out about our proven, effective workshops. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I do love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any other previous rant, please visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. Here's a great question to get us started, taking exception to something I might have said last time. Hey, Seth. This is Sean Mabry calling in once again from Claremont, California. And I am calling to respectfully disagree with your answer to a question in the most recent episode. So uh, one of your listeners had called in asking about uh, his decision to pursue a career in creative coaching. And he was asking, you know, do I need to have a impressive list of accomplishments under my belt before I start doing this creative coaching work? And you identified correctly that he doesn't need to be the Michael Jordan of any particular craft before he starts doing creative coaching work. And ultimately, the, the most important proof of his career will be the success of his students. And I agree with that part. The part I disagree with is the implication I heard that you can be a successful creative coach without any creative practice of your own. Thank you for all you do. Uh, I'm a huge, huge fan. I have been following you for years. And uh, I can't wait to hear your response. 
Thanks, Seth. Yeah, we don't disagree. I don't think we disagree at all. The fact is, it is possible to teach people things that you are not great at. For example, you can teach people how to swim even if a physical disability prevents you from being able to swim. On the other hand, the entire point of being a coach of people who seek to be creative is that it is a practice available to everyone. So if I wasn't clear last time, to clarify, yes, you have to have a creative practice. All of us do, but particularly someone who is there to coach us in how to have a creative practice. But no, you don't need commercial success. And that is a very different standard. Commercial success in most fields is not a measure of whether someone is good at teaching or not. Hey, Seth, this is Bill Heitch in Austin, Texas. Seth, I have a project I'm working on to make a difference in the world. Seth, I know who it's for and what it's for. But the other day when I was listening to a podcast, you threw in a third criteria, which was, how do you know if it's working? Now, I may have misheard that or not remembered it clearly, but that really got my attention. And that's really my question. You know, it's I'm running into some headwinds I didn't expect. Uh, so how do I know? How do I know if it's time to give up? How do I know if it's working? And uh, I think that's it. I really appreciate the work you do. I look forward to hearing back from you, sir. Bye-bye. This is a great question. Thank you for sharing it. How do you know if it's working? Because it's working doesn't mean the same thing as it worked. It's working are signs of progress, means it's worth continuing. But it doesn't work until much later in the process. So the dilemma that so many creatives face is the signals are all mixed up. At the beginning, people who care about you push you to drop it, to get a real job, to stop doing things that are wasting your time. And so the signals are all messed up. We don't hear a lot from the people we seek to change about the change we're making actually working until much later in the process. So part of what it means to develop a practice to be able to do this work is to figure out which signals you're going to pay attention to. So back in the day, when I was beginning my book packaging work, inventing books for book publishers, I got rejected a lot, 800 rejections in one year. But over time, the rejections began to change. They went from a form letter to a thoughtful personal response to a warm response to a lunch. Each step along the way, I was still getting rejected. There was no money coming in. But I could tell something I was doing was beginning to resonate with people. I was learning. I was changing what I was doing. I wasn't battering the market over and over again with the same message. So what we seek to do is find the smallest viable audience. What's the group, the right group, that you need to target, to work for, to be generous to? And then, what are the signals short of overwhelming success that let you know that maybe you're learning something? Maybe you're getting better at what you're doing. So I can't tell you what those signals are, but I can encourage you to look for them because the people who have come before you have looked for them and they have persisted because I don't believe it's productive to say I'm going to ignore everything and stick with this forever because sometimes that works, but it usually doesn't. Hey, Seth. This is Mike in Toronto, Canada. 
I recently completed a Myers-Briggs personality test and found the whole process and conclusions quite interesting. It's quite common for psychologists or counselors to issue these tests and use the results as a lens for considering and recommending new career pathways and opportunities, or they can be used as a tool in relationship counseling that helps improve communication and understanding between partners. Though after going through this process, there was something alarming about the results in that I didn't necessarily want to be defined or limited by the qualities and attributes of a certain personality type felt a touch fatalistic. But on the other hand, a lot of those qualities, for better or worse, seem to be quite accurate. So my question is, aside from any general comments on personality types and quizzes, is what are your thoughts on trying to dig into understanding one's own personality as a means to help us navigate the decisions and choices we will encounter in the work that we do? Or even what work should we do? Thanks for all you do. I've really appreciated and gained a lot from your books and podcasts. Cheers. Thank you for this. And thank you for teeing up my rant about personality because personality is real and personality can change. Personality informs our culture and our culture informs our personality. So yes, it is helpful to get some insight about what turns us on and what doesn't, what we naturally dance with and what we don't. But as you pointed out, it shouldn't be a trap. It's one thing to read a horoscope and to think, wow, this sort of resonates with me. Maybe this works. But it's another to believe that it's the one and only truth, that it's too easy to get hooked on generalizations and think that they are about us and immutable. But they're not immutable. These are tools, and we can use them as leverage to get to where we want to go. So it would break my heart if someone got trapped into thinking that they are only entitled, only open, only able to do a very small range of contributions to our community. It's just not true. But too often, we're paralyzed by fear. And even a horoscope gives us just a little bit of confidence. I know that we can do better than that. And the way we do better than that is by doing the work and then feeling motivated, not the other way around. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet, like we have data. What All MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you going to show up? When are you going to face that blank page? When are you going to face the possibilities within you? When are you going to face those fears? I'm not going to let you hide. You got to show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple. It sounds very commonsensical. But it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up.
Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.